Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And we've got two guests with us today, one new and one we're welcoming back. First, let me describe our uh, and introduce you to our new guest, Chef Desmond Fannin. I'm so glad to have you, Chef, Director of Culinary Training for Sodexo, somebody who has a passion for cooking that goes from, I read IHOP uh, to culinary school to now Sodexo. We're thrilled to have you with us. Awesome. Great great to be here. Thank you for having me. And Jerry Mason Hall, welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. We had a great conversation about 18 months ago, and I think subsequent to that, Jerry, you've become Sodexo's Chief Diversity and Sustainability Officer for the Americas. Is that correct? That's correct, Billy, and I'm super excited to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really glad to have you back, especially at a time when these issues in which you have such expertise are right at the center of the national conversation. So let's come to that in just a moment. But first, because we've got a chef with us of Desmond's caliber, and because our listeners are passionate about food, I'd love to hear, Desmond, a little bit just about your journey. I had read that your passion for food started at a very young age. Tell us where it began and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, actually, yeah, it started when I was 15. Uh, that was my first ever job, and and I was working in, in a restaurant. And I was I wasn't even in the kitchen. I was working the front line and heard everybody in the back having fun. And I told my manager, "Hey, I I want to have fun at work too." And he said, "Well, you need to learn how to cook." So put me back there, and eventually, um, I caught on pretty quickly. And after I left high school, I went to culinary school a couple of years after graduated from Art Institute of Atlanta. Oh, this was all and in Georgia, Desmond? This was all in Georgia, yes. yes. And after I left Art Institute of Atlanta, I began working with Sodexo, I think two months after graduation. Wow. And um, yeah, it started, started out as a grill cook, of course, coming out with a culinary degree. I'm like, I want a chef job. They're like, no, we don't have a chef job for you, get, but you can get your foot in the door as a cook if you like. And I did that and worked my way up from there and did a lot of time as a, as an executive chef in corporate services and spent a lot of time in, in K-12 as well, where I learned much more than I thought I would learn, not just about culinary in K-12, but about the, the topics that we'll talk about today. So that's a little bit of my journey in, in a nutshell. And what do your responsibilities include now? So right now, my responsibilities entail creating training content for all of the internal brands and concepts that we develop for North America. I also run the Global Chef Program for North America, which is a program that brings uh, chefs from the 80 countries or so that we serve around the world, bring them here to the United States, well, to North America because it's Canada as well, and bring them here for a month at a time to share their cuisine, their passion, and their love for food with our clients and our guests for weeks. So I do that twice a year. So I lead that for North America. So pretty broad span of responsibilities. And one of the things that I had read from you was that one of the things that really motivated you was giving young people uh, a sense of what the options are in the culinary world. Is that something that you continue to think about? 
That's spot on. I mean, that that's one of the reasons why I do as much as I can do and be as visible as I can, because what really motivated me to want to be a, a chef was I saw people who looked like me excelling in the industry and having fun doing what they're doing and impacting lives and say, hey, I, I want to do that. So I feel like I have a responsibility to be, you know, that person for somebody else. Well, Desmond, one thing I want to ask you before I turn to Jerry is when you say you saw people that looked like you in the industry, one of the things that we've heard probably, you know, too many times over the last few months is that there are not enough people of color in the industry. Did it create obstacles or barriers for you? Were there things you felt you had to overcome? Are there ways you're able to help others navigate that? That's a good question. It's it's every now and then you'll hit a you'll hit a tough point where you face it, you kind of, you know, it's coming, you know, it's there, you know, some of the discrimination and, you know, you almost have to prove yourself twice over in certain instances, but it, it's, it, as long as you are confident in your abilities, you have good, strong mentors around you, you can navigate those obstacles. Not that it gets any easier as it happens, as you, as you go along in your career, but like I said, you, you feel like you have a responsibility to push through because other people will need to navigate those waters as well. And if you give up and if you stop uh, trying to you know push forward, then you're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting anybody that's trying to get to the level that you're where you are now. So and, and I'm not saying that it's it's uh, always a struggle. But it's it's definitely always in the back of my mind as an African-American, whether it's blatant or not, it's you're keen to know that it's, it's there. So it sounds like you were inspired by others and in turn feel some responsibility to inspire others. 100%. Wow, that's great to hear. Jerry, you've been, you wear many hats, uh, including chairing the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation, which has been such a important player in the anti-hunger community that Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign are, are part of. Sodexo has also very generously been a sponsor of this podcast of Add Passion and Stir. And I know that you're on the board of various organizations, including the United Negro College Fund. The last time we spoke, I think you were leading HR at Sodexo, and now this has evolved into, as what we said a moment ago, feels like one of the number one sought-after fields of expertise in in the country right now, and probably for the foreseeable future in terms of being Chief Diversity and Sustainability Officer. I know you've got a long track record on diversity, equity, inclusion. Tell us a little bit about how your jobs evolved and what that focus means in this moment that we're we're living in. Yeah, so so absolutely, Billy. This is my passion work, as you well know. And so, I mean, I am just blessed that you're right. The last five years, I've led North America Human Resources um, for Sodexo and all that that entails. But I actually joined the company over a decade ago, and my first role was a DNI role embedded in the segment. And so, you know, fast forward, I've had a series of roles, but so excited, you know, the stars aligned. My predecessor, the famous Dr. Rohini Anand, announced her retirement. 
And I was ready to segue. And so I did take on this role last year, which is expanded covering both North and South America. And it is the DE&I, but also corporate responsibility. And so it, it, it really is about our Better Tomorrow Plan, which is three-pronged. So that's our DE&I, it's our sustainability, and it's our philanthropy around Stop Hunger. And of course, our valued partnership with you, Deb, and the team addressing childhood food insecurity. So not, not just three prongs, almost like three full-time jobs, it sounds like that you've got. Yeah, you think, Billy? Mm. <laughs> Well, on on the diversity piece of it, talk a little bit about what a company of Sodexo size. How do you how do you even begin to tackle that? Where do you start? You know, we're wrestling with this internally uh, at Share Our Strength and with our team on the the No Kid Hungry campaign. We want to make sure that we're adding a, a stronger race equity lens to our work. We want to make sure that we're doing a better job of inclusiveness at every level of the organization. And as you know, there's there's just a lot of complexity to it. There's a lot of desire and demand for better training so that people know how to talk about these issues and act on these issues. Where do you begin every day? Yeah. So so again, I have a I've tried to make it simple. And I have a, a three-pronged plan even within uh, the DE&I and starting with our people. So it's always about our workforce first and foremost. So people like Desmond, like Chef Desmond. Then it's our partners and, and our clients. And, and so looking at the universities, the corporations, the K-12 through with whom which uh, we serve. And then lastly, the communities within which we operate and then partnering with organizations, again, like yours, to impact those communities positively and being very intentional in that work. And so when I go back to the people component, you know, a quick story Desmond has shared often, and it really does make me proud and reminds me this is the work that I do. But as a young chef, I came to know Desmond and was very impressed with him. And I think part of what organizations have to do is recognize that talent, recognize those underrepresented and create opportunities. And so Desmond's first trip to Paris to work with our a large Paris team was at my sponsorship. And so that's part of my job to recognize that talent, to go to our leaders and create opportunities and to say, here's some outstanding talent, often overlooked just because of natural biases and unconscious biases, but often overlooked. And my job is to make sure that they're seen. Well, you know, we're talking about this work, which is always important. And now we're talking about it in the midst of a pandemic. And I'd love to hear from each of you about how that has impacted or changed. When I think of, you know, Share Our Strength is so immersed in the culinary community, Chef, and we work with so many chefs and restaurateurs. And of course, in many places there, you know, the, the industry is struggling mightily. The whole country's been terribly hurt, but arguably the restaurant industry has been hurt even disproportionately. What's How's it impacted your work, Chef? From my standpoint, a, a lot of my work is indeed virtual. So I was already used to the to the virtual piece of trying to get things done, but it's, it's changed a lot of the in-person 
training that we would do, the frontline employees, getting them ready for you know the rollout of new concepts, new recipes, and things like that. But it it has also helped us strengthen our our training approach because we can't be there in person, so we have to figure out how to do this virtually and still wrap in that that human element of the training, even though you can't be in person. Culinary wise, you still have to try to train those those cooks to enhance their culinary skills virtually as well. But we also in this new, you know, this this new COVID world, we have to train them how to not only uh, keep themselves safe, but to keep the employees, the other employees around them safe, uh, any purveyors or suppliers that we're using, as well as the customers and clients. So, you know, we had to develop what we call the six foot kitchen, which is a, a program to uh, look at every aspect of back of the house and help give give the employees a little less to think about during the day as to how they can keep themselves safe and keep the food safe and everything. All while they're worrying about, hey, you know, am I at risk of, of carrying the traits of COVID myself, you know, outside of work? So once they get in inside of work, we try to minimize that that angst for them. Wow. So you had a little bit maybe of a head start on this by doing some work virtually early on. But now, of course, everything is virtual. And I'm assuming the same for you, Jerry. Yeah. So so we have been a, a very flexible organization, had been promoting flexibility where we can. But as as you know, Billy, the, the nature of our work is on site. It's, you know, our, especially our food service. It's on site in someone else's location. So we have been creative and also supportive. And, and we often talk about K through 12 with your organization, but in this pandemic, when school shut down, we continue to serve because we know how critical it is for children to have access to food. And so, but we had to think differently. And so while we weren't in the kitchen, we were still thinking about social distancing and how do we still provide and support the community? So our our people first, of, as Desmond described, we first taught them, okay, what's safe? How you know, mask up, glove up, etc. And then we were preparing grab and go meals. So we still could have from ten to two every day in many of our school districts. Our teams were feeding those students. Their parents could come during that period and get the grab and go to ensure healthy, nutritious meals. So that's just one one of our responses. But we're also gearing up, as Desmond was describing, for those districts that are opening. And so we have the six-foot kitchen model, and we also have a host of other measures that we are focused on to ensure confidence in coming back, security, but also continuing to focus on the best way to deliver nutritious meals in this contained environment. And about how many schools or school districts does Sodexo work in? It's got to be a massive number. Oh, yeah. We're all across all across the country. So thousands and thousands of students depend on us throughout the country. And as you see on the news, each one of them has a different approach. We even have universities that, you know, they opened one day, they closed three weeks later. And so, yes, thousands of these these young people, many are coming back live right now 
school districts opening as we speak, and we're there. But again, rethinking, gone are the, the salad bars for sure. But that doesn't mean that we still don't have local produce and focus on nutritional offerings. So when the schools closed in the spring, we found ourselves, as you know, working with you and others to replace those meals in grab-and-go situations, uh, working with other community partners, perhaps YMCAs or Boys and Girls Clubs that were working with schools. Now, as you referenced, I think it's even more complex because they're coming back in dozens, if not hundreds of different ways. Some you know, and, and many of them hybrid situations. My, my Our son is going to be going to school through September and part of October, only one day a week in person and four days a week online. And that's true of many other kids and many other variations of that. So all the combinations and permutations of how you feed kids under such circumstances, there's a, an element of complexity there that I don't think any of us have ever dealt with. I so agree with you, Billy. And, and the thing is, This is where I applaud you as well for your advocacy, but we are trying to figure out and partner with school districts. How can we together be more proactive? We'll get through this pandemic. We're confident of that. We're going to have a vaccine. We're going to get through this. But what's the the next thing? What do we think about with the school districts to be better, with the municipality to be better? so that we have solutions that aren't reactive and afterthoughts. And so, you know, one of those things is is thinking about connecting the dots as a school, as a hub. And so those community services where the parents have confidence, I can come to the school for solutions. You know, right now I'm thinking about her, every year we think about hurricane season and the impact on our teams, both our employees at home, but the the communities we serve. And so we're in the midst of that. You know, Laura hit the South today. And, And so how can we be kind of a mini version of FEMA, if you will, in this nutrition and wellness space with those school districts to be better prepared? And it is so very complex, Billy. So that's why we appreciate your advocacy in this space and and partnering to think about what are the solutions that we can come to together. Yeah. And I would just thank you for saying that. And likewise, we appreciate your incredibly generous support and the long commitment of the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. For, For our listeners who may not be aware, our advocacy has been focused on how do we eliminate whatever barriers, regulatory or bureaucratic or logistical, might stand between a hungry child and a and a healthy meal. So, you know, there are all these rules and regulations that schools appropriately needed to follow in the pre-COVID era to get reimbursed by the federal government for their for the meals that they serve to kids. But so many of those rules became outdated in the face of COVID because kids weren't necessarily uh, showing up outside the schools once the schools closed to pick up their grab-and-go meal. Sometimes it was their parents, and we had to make that legal and appropriate. We had to eliminate some of the congregate feeding rules that said, you know, in the summertime, kids have to eat together in a congregate space. Well, of course, uh, with the coronavirus, we want them to do just the opposite, is not be together. So we've had to get that changed as well. So it's been one effort after another 
to eliminate and get waivers for some of these regulations that just don't make sense in the time of this pandemic. And hopefully we'll be able to continue to do that. We've had a lot of bipartisan support for it. As you know, almost everything we do, we try to do on a bipartisan basis because that's just how you get things done. And there's there's still a lot of that uh, ahead of us. When you both talk about the six-foot kitchen, I think you mentioned it first, Chef. Are you just talking about the basic social distancing rule of six feet? Is that where that comes from? Yes. And, and it, it, it goes through every aspect of uh, you know production, food storage, food delivery, every aspect of, of back of the house, uh, making sure that you are keeping that you know, six foot distance and uh, going through all the other precautions as well. Yeah. So we use the term six foot, but it's not just about the distancing. It's as Jeff says, it's every aspect. And I applaud the teams. I mean, they dissected. Okay. First you do this, then you do this, then you do this. And so every, every possible opportunity to be unsafe was checked and and rethought. And so, I mean, I really applaud the intentionality here and in the interest, again, of safety and trust because, you know, people are, are trusting us to ensure their health and wellness. You've developed a reputation to be trusted. And so I could see why that is so precious to you and why you, you work so hard to, to maintain it. Chef, uh, you know, I was Curious, when you think about your work as a chef, and we were talking about your kind of path and your journey, how much of it do you ascribe to innate talent, maybe even a talent that you weren't even aware you had at first versus hard work? I'm sure it's a combination of some. But when did you realize that you had a, a gift for cooking? It's, it's, it's funny. I had to be told that I had it. Actually, one of my managers saw it before I saw it. Uh, like I said, I, I just wanted to have you, fun. You remember what that manager had, had tasted of yours? That, that it, it wasn't gave... even a taste. I mean, we eat with our eyes first, right? So he came to me and he said, I'm, I'm in the back just having fun. He walks up and he says, so what, what do you want to do with, with your career, with your talent? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm making a living. I'm making money. He said, no, you, you have a talent for this culinary world because all of your food looks like the menu. So it, it, you know, yes, it, it, I guess I'm assuming it tasted the way it tasted because, you know, some of the waitresses would not eat unless I was on a certain station. They say, well, when you get on that station, that's when I'll go to break. So you had that piece of it, but it took that manager coming up to say, you should do something with this because you have a, you know, you have an artistic talent above just the, just the taste of the food. So. That's what sparked it for me. I love that, Billy, how he says we first eat with our eyes. Don't you agree? <laughs> yeah. Eyes first, then nose, then your mouth. Uh, and I assume that once you heard that, you just you just decided to dive in even deeper to what you were passionate about. I, I did. But uh, unfortunately, at that point, I didn't I didn't even know how to go about culinary school. That was the first time I heard the word culinary. It's like, what what is culinary? What are you talking about? <laughs> But he said, you should, you should think about going to culinary school. And, you know, I, I couldn't afford it. So I, luckily, um, I was blessed with a, with a mentor to come into my life a couple, couple years later. And I just told him of my aspirations. Tell, tell us about the mentor. So he was, he was actually my pastor at the time, Bishop Eddie L. Long. He's passed away a couple years ago. But he came in and he said, well, wh- what do you want to do? And I said, well, I can't, I want to go to culinary school, but I can't afford it, da, 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 da. And he said, I didn't ask you 
what you can't do. I asked you what you wanted to do. And I told him what I wanted to do. And, and he said, well, you just need to just start. Pick the school, go to school, start start the application process and all of that. And he later came in and, and, and helped me uh, financially with some aspects of, of, of the bill that I couldn't pay. And because I was volunteering at the church at the time as well. And he said, you've been given your time in addition to, you know, trying to, you know, make something out of yourself by going to school. I'm going to cover this part so you don't have to think about it. And I'm just ready for the day one day that I'm able to do that for somebody else. But that's that's what really sparked it for me. And he supported me the whole way through, even afterward. So, yeah, that that's that was my my start with my culinary. Wow. Everybody should have somebody like that in their life, right? It's just, it makes all the difference. Absolutely. It makes all the difference. Wouldn't be here without it. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about the DEI work that we were speaking about earlier, Jerry. I, I know that in our organization, so many other organizations I work with, I've seen it with businesses, seen it with nonprofits. There's a real deep interest now in whether you're going to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Everyone is saying the right things about the need to be more diverse and, and inclusive. But what actions are you taking? At least that's what we get pressed on, and I think appropriately. So is that a is that a tension that every organization and business feels at a moment like this? We're having this conversation within you know, 48 hours of the shooting in Kenosha of Jacob Blake. And I know that there's just, you know, many of the sports teams have gone out in uh, protest of that police action and have decided not to play. So we continue to see this kind of heightened awareness. And I'm guessing that your phone just rings off the hook with colleagues who have ideas of uh, things that, you know, you should be doing to even raise the bar higher. How do you handle that? Yeah, so I take it in stride, Billy. I take it in stride because everyone's an expert, aren't they? But that said, yes, this this is an absolute movement, not a moment. And those who are just taking this moment to market or, or make some performative gesture, it'll show up. It will show up in the long run. And so as you're trying to attract good talent to your organization, the question will be asked. Students are are challenging on campuses now, and they are asking the question. That's often where change occurs, right, with students, all of the student activism. And so these are the challenges. And so, as I said, this is my passion work. This isn't new to me. This isn't a brand new moment. But we absolutely don't rest on our laurels, don't rest on the things that we have done, but challenge ourselves to what more can we do and what will we do? So so absolutely, I am open to suggestions. We have part of our practice at, at Sodexo is our EBRGs, our employee business resource groups. And I welcome the input of those team members who, you know, this, this is their volunteer time and they are committed to being the change they want to see in the world. And their suggestions, especially right now, ALF, our African-American Leadership Forum, that's the EBRG. Desmond is a member, in fact. But I welcome their input among others and, and recognizing the intersectionality of the various groups. So again, as I said, my strategy threefold, focusing on people, 
partners and places. And so people first and getting that input, we will continue to build and continue to drive change in the organization. And do you find that for yourself, Jerry, you have to not only be an executive in the company, but be an advocate internally with other execs? You probably play a little bit of a of a uh, an intermediary for the organization. Absolutely, absolutely. That is my my chosen role and responsibility. And so, yeah, I'm also an educator. We have a number of new leaders. We've had, you know, as we've evolved, lots of those who have been on the journey with us have retired. So new team members coming in, understanding these issues, understanding the difference between their intent and their impact, all of these things. But that's the work that I've chosen to, in fact, help them to understand, help them to understand their their individual biases and his systemic issues, both in society and in corporate America. Well, it's great to be talking to two people who love the work they're doing or passionate about it, who understand its importance in the moment. As we kind of run out of time here, I don't want to close without hearing a little bit more about the great work of the Sodexo's Stop Hunger Foundation. Just tell us what the latest is. Yeah. So we are we are challenged like many. We were so disappointed. Our our largest fundraiser we had to cancel because it was a live event like many other organizations. We canceled this past summer. We still have supporters who donate, but we're all in this together. And many foundations, many organizations like yours are being challenged on their fundraising. But then the other side of it is the volunteerism. And so we're, we work closely with food banks around the country. And what they're finding is because of social distancing and a range of other issues, the volunteers can't come in. And so we have to think about how do we do things differently? We had a creative kind of um, no contact volunteer program to help some food banks recently where, you know, we dropped bags on people's front, they filled it up, and then we picked it up. And so there was no contact, just old fashioned drive-bys. So things like that, that's a very small scale, but partnering with organizations, rethinking how do we help food banks? Because as The volunteerism has declined. The demand has surged with the unemployment steadily rising, with the impact of COVID being felt in disproportionate measures in communities of color and communities where there are already pre-existing issues like food deserts. So all of these things are creating a perfect storm. And the foundation is pleased to be a part of the solution and part of working with partners to come up with better solutions. But it, it is a challenge and I'm happy to be the chair and so proud of the team that works on this, but there's so much, so much more to be done, Billy. Well, you've given a great summation of exactly where the, I think the anti-hunger community at large stands today. And although fundraising and volunteering becomes more challenging at a time like this, you'd probably agree that one, I guess, countervailing factor has been a tremendous increase in awareness of 
you know, how many Americans are hungry or at risk at hunger? We all saw in the early days of the pandemic that kind of iconic image at the San Antonio Food Bank of thousands and thousands of cars and families lined up. This was, you know, back in April. And I think it really, for a lot of Americans, for the first time, they realized, wow, our fellow citizens, many of them are struggling in ways we hadn't imagined or just, you know, one paycheck away from being in need themselves. And in some ways, I think that can create a base of support that will make our work together, whether it's the No Kid Hungry campaign or Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation, will make it even more relevant and give it more resonance in, in the months and years ahead. So thank you both for what you're doing. Thanks for being such incredible supporters of our anti-hunger work. The uh, Stop Hunger Foundation just really has made a big impact over the years. And we just, we, we love working with you, with y'all. We really do. And just honored to have both of you on the podcast, Chef Desmond Fannin and Jerry Mason Hall. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Billy. Thank you. Chef, I can't wait to try your food sometime. <laughs> I can't wait for you to try it. <laughs> and for uh, all of our listeners, special thanks to the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign and our producer, Paul Woodle at District Productive, who brings forth this podcast on a weekly basis and has for several years now. We hope you'll, uh, in addition to enjoying this episode, go to adpassionandstir.com and look for previous uh, episodes in our archive, more than 150 uh, episodes with culinary leaders and civic and community and philanthropic leaders. Um, thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir.